Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Yesterday on Access Utah, we talked with members of a modern-day polygamous community, members of the Centennial Park community. Today, in part two of our series, we'll learn how polygamy began in America. When Joseph Smith began to reveal and teach the doctrine of plural marriage in 1841, even stalwart church members like Brigham Young were shocked and confused. And Marina Young is out with a new book, Revelation, Resistance, and Mormon Polygamy, the Introduction and Implementation of the Principle. Uh, Marina Smith is an independent historian, and she writes in her introduction that she studied this period. She was haunted by one question which she felt was not adequately addressed. Why and by what process were people uh, convinced to practice polygamy when most were at first firmly, even passionately opposed to it? That's the question we'll take up today with historian Marina Smith. Following the news. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Yesterday on the program, we talked with members of a modern-day polygamous community, members of the Centennial Park community in northern Arizona. Today, in part two of our series, we're going to learn how polygamy began in America. When Joseph Smith began to reveal and teach the doctrine of plural marriage in 1841, even stalwart church members like Brigham Young were shocked and confused. And in her new book, Revelation, Resistance, and Mormon Polygamy, The Introduction and Implementation of the Principle, 1830-1853, historian Marina Smith writes that uh, she was doing research that she was haunted by one question she felt was uh, not adequately addressed. Why and by what process were people convinced to practice polygamy when most were at first firmly, even passionately, opposed to it? That's the central question of her book, and we welcome in uh, historian Marina Smith. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I should say that, uh, that uh, Marina Smith uh, graduated from University of Colorado. Uh, according to a brief biography here, raised five children, then returned to graduate school, earning a Ph.D. from University of California in San Diego in 2011. Currently researches and writes as an independent historian, resides in San Diego with her husband, legal scholar uh, Stephen uh, Smith. Uh, I understand from your introduction that you intended to write about a different period of, of Mormon history and polygamy, and then were guided into this research by that question that I just uh, quoted. Yes, that's exactly right. I um, actually thought I would just do away with the Nauvoo part or deal with it in one chapter and then move on to Utah. And the one chapter became my whole book. So <laughs> That's the way it happens sometimes. Uh, and this has an interesting resonance to the program we did yesterday, uh, which we talked to modern-day practicers of uh, polygamy, uh, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of people wonder why. Why do people practice polygamy? And it comes, if you talk to, uh, to, to the people, the modern-day polygamous communities, they'll, they'll cite several reasons, but it, it comes down to central religious belief, which are offshoots from the, from the Mormon Church. And so we're going to go back to the beginning uh, uh, today. Um, I wonder if you could talk uh, just briefly about, and then we'll get into uh, some of the context, uh, Brigham Young's response. Brigham Young, as you, you say in the book, became the most famous uh, married person in America, became the, the face of polygamy. His reaction, mm-hmm. I think, was probably pretty typical to the people who, uh, to whom uh, Joseph Smith introduced this. Well, yes, that's exactly right. He said that when it was introduced to him, he 
would see someone in a coffin and he would envy them <laughs> because he was so reluctant to enter into polygamy. But he believed Joseph Smith was a prophet, and so he believed it must be right, and he felt obliged to. So. Uh, so I wonder um, if you could uh, talk a little bit about the maybe the context of the times. This is this is not only a, a Victorian era, but uh, as you write in the book, and I, I learned in the book, uh, the concept of monogamy was even baked into the idea, the the foundational idea of America. Yes, that's true. Um, because the founders felt that monogamy was sort of symbolic of all the good things that they hoped to foster in the new, their new country, and that uh, polygamy was kind of symbolic of oppression and um, all the bad things that they were hoping to leave behind. So, yes, that was a large part of it. But it was also part of the, um, the religious context of the time, I guess you'd have to say. It seemed like in the late 18th century that, you know, you had the Enlightenment and that religion was kind of being downplayed and that that they were losing members and so on in the churches. But actually, that was kind of just the prelude to a whole new religious scene that was coming along, the Second Great Awakening, you might call it. And uh, Joseph Smith, the Mormons, Baptists, the Methodists were all part of this scene. And it was something that, I argue, um, allowed people to consider new ways of thinking and new uh, religious forms and so on, because um, it was a time when uh, there was a lot of millenarian feeling. You know, people thought the millennium is coming, it's coming soon, and that seemed to be right based on what had happened in the revolution. You know, that was so amazing that they had won the revolution and that um, America, that they had become a country and so when Joseph Smith came with the Book of Mormon and giving religious credentials to their new country and to the promised land, to the American continent, that was really appealing to people. And, and um, the whole millenarian point of view allowed them to think, well, new things are happening, and um, we're, we're willing to believe that some, we might be required to do some unusual things. So I think polygamy kind of fits into that whole picture. And also the sense that um, they thought that the new religious um, leaders would come from the people in a charismatic way. And, you know, they'd sort of left behind the old clergy who were, you know, trained, and they said, we're the only ones who can interpret Scripture and so on. But in their new thinking, uh, the leaders would arise from the people, and everyone could interpret Scripture. So these are all kind of important backdrops to the rise of religions and to people's understanding and thinking that maybe they could accept something like polygamy. Not that they did at first, but it was just a precursor, I guess you'd say. I think that you, know, you write in the book that some people, I guess, I don't know, many members of the Mormon Church, uh, even with this millenarian idea that uh, we're, we're going to be exposed to new things and that's okay, uh, but they perhaps, if they heard of polygamy, uh, that they thought maybe that's something in the future. It's, it's not going to be right now. Right, but... exactly. Yeah, it wasn't that they were willing to accept it. I think what I argue more is that they were willing to believe that unusual things might be asked of them. But when polygamy was brought up, in Nauvoo at any time publicly, it was no one 
accepted it and everyone repudiated it. But there was just the sense, I think, that new things could be required. And if it could be fit into a theology or what I call a theological narrative, then they might be willing to accept it. And so my book really is all about how that happened, how they were able to develop that narrative that eventually allowed people to accept it. And this is a, a, a crucial question, as I as mentioned before. This this goes to today. If you if you want to understand uh, how why people practice it today, you go mm-hmm, back to the sure. beginnings here. Uh, right. I wonder if you could tell me a bit about the Fulmers. These were you have this in the, the first chapter in your book or the, the first period here. Um, sorting. Le- I'm sorry leading. about the what? The 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 Fulmer family. I think if I got the name right oh, here. Oh sure sure sorry. Yes, that's my own family actually. Is it really? And yes, yeah, that's my. John Solomon Fulmer is my great-great-grandfather. <laughs> so, um, yes, I used them as an example in part because I had a lot of documents about them, but I think they were fairly typical. And so they, um, he had wanted to be a Baptist minister, and he started studying for the ministry, but he didn't really have the money to do it. And his family had joined, his brothers and his parents. So he was living in Nashville, and they were living up in Ohio, and when they joined, he was pretty alarmed because he heard uh, how strange Mormons were and all of the rumors and so on. But his brother kept informing him, and when he told him, his brother told him that he had been ordained a minister of the gospel, then John Fulmer became really interested because that's something that he wanted to be, but he hadn't been able to afford to um, continue in his studies and so on. And so I kind of show how John Fulmer was able to accept so many of these things and how appealing they were to him. And, you know, that's kind of, I think, what happened with most people who joined at that time. The Book of Mormon and the history that tied the American continent to um, the religious history of the Bible and so on, and being able to be ordained to be part of the ministry, and all of these things were really appealing to early members. You talk about uh, the resacralization of marriage. What do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a pretty interesting thing because if Mormons were going to be able to uh, change the marriage patterns, you know, in the um, the pilgrims and so on, marriage was not a sacrament to them, and so, um, but it, it always has been for Catholics. And so, uh, what Joseph Smith was doing when he started performing marriages then he would evoke the name of um, the Old Testament prophets and so on, and Adam, and he would do it in the name of all these people who were polygamous. And then they were taking the power. He said only the power of the priesthood has the ability to solemnize these marriages. And so it's really making those marriages sacred in the same way that Catholics sacralized their marriages. So it was really a change from what had been done previously in the Protestant sects and so on. And so um, this really gave marriage a new importance, and it gave the Church the ability to say which marriages were legitimate and which ones were accepted in the Church. In the church. And this was kind of necessary because you had many instances where someone would join the Church and their spouse wouldn't, or they would be abandoned by their spouse or something like that, and so they'd be in marital limbo, which actually was pretty common in those days, you know, everywhere. And so um, if the Church had this ability to say, well, we can sacralize your marriage 
without a divorce or whatever and make it legitimate, then that gave them the power to really control the marriage patterns of its its members. And so that was really kind of an important step moving toward polygamy. It's interesting uh, to me that this, uh, this dichotomy between uh, church control and the church sanction of marriage, which it, I guess had been a little bit uh, de-emphasized in the, in, in the Protestant, uh, you know, Reformation, uh, uh-huh. and, and the idea of public oversight, and, and that brings us to today, yeah. where there's a whole debate today over, you know, which kinds of yeah. marriages should uh, should 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 we as a public sanction, and and yeah. that's a very important question. It is. It's a huge question. Which, yeah, it's it's not ending. It's not going away anytime soon. <laughs> and so there's a big controversy. I've always had the question, and, and maybe you can answer this for me. Uh, famously, in the 19th century and, uh, and going forward, uh, there was uh, there were the two the twin relics of barbarism. Right? Uh, there's yeah. slavery and polygamy. And I can understand right. slavery at least maybe through the prism of my you know 21st century experience, uh, mm-hmm. how, how you could be not only opposed to slavery, but vehemently opposed. But yeah. polygamy, I, I could see opposition to it, but I, I guess I don't understand the vehemence of the opposition, equating it with uh, with slavery. Well, you know, when you look at back at the founders, um, it does kind of make sense, I think, because they did equate it with... Um, oppression and, um, you know, all kinds of bad things from the past. And so I, well, you know, it kind of makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in the context of the times, as we were saying before, this idea of monogamy was was very much a part of the American ideal. So I guess that, that, oh, that, that could explain it as well. Yes, because, you know, they, they put a lot of importance on the home and in how people were trained to be citizens of their new country and how they would be trained up in good principles and in um, ways that would allow them to carry on this thing that they had started. They understood right away that the citizens are going to be the ones who allow our country to thrive and prosper. So, yeah, that that was really important. Mm. We're talking with Marina Smith. She's an independent historian, has written an interesting new book, Revelation, Resistance, and Mormon Polygamy, The Introduction and Implementation of the Principle, 1830 to 1853. And uh, she treats as a central question, the central question in her book, uh, the mystery of early adherents' acceptance of such a radical form of marriage in the light of their dedication to the accepted monogamous marriage patterns of their day. We're going to get into that a little more. The uh, introduction, at first secret introduction to various people in the Nauvoo period, and what the reaction of the people were. Uh, go ahead. I was just going to read you a little passage from my book that yes. I think will kind of explain it. It says, yeah. Revolutionary era discussions of appropriate marriage partners and the usefulness of marriage in the Republican social order assumed that the household conduct was linked to political government. Underlying these discussions were the writings of Montesquieu, whose work initiated what became a formulaic enlightenment association of polygamy with despotism. The harem stood for tyrannical rule, political corruption, coercion, elevation of the passions over reason, selfishness, hypocrisy, all of the evils that virtuous Republicans and enlightened thinkers wanted to avoid. Monogamy, in contrast, stood for a government of consent, moderation, and political liberty. So this is why uh, they were committed to monogamous marriage on a Christian model. This is a quote from Nancy Cott that I included in my book, but I think that kind of explains why 
the you know polygamy and um, slavery were regarded as the twin evils. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and I think it's important to to understand that. Uh, thank you for that uh, for reading that. Uh, because that, in part, explains the the, the long battle uh, between the Mormons and the and the and the Congress. Yes, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, going going forward, and, and in in our today's you know sort of post nineteen sixties and and such, we, we we sometimes have trouble understanding the the vehemence, the, the intensity of the feeling of, of the times. Uh, I guess some people do. I don't. But. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> it could be just me. Uh, we're talking with Marina Smith. Uh, her book is Revelation, Resistance, and Mormon Polygamy. We're going to take a brief break. And uh, when we come back, we'll uh, talk about introduction, uh, first to just a few people in secret by Joseph Smith, of this, uh, what came to be known as the principle, and reaction and uh, that's a very interesting story, and putting it in the context of the times, even more interesting. Back after a break. Waste not. Do not overwater your grass. If the grass bounces back a few steps later, then things are just fine. If your footprints stay halfway or all the way down, then it's time to drag out the hose, though we suggest checking to see if rain is in the forecast first. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's King John, with seven other productions June through October 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org and by USU Human Resources. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Yesterday on the program, we talked with members of a modern-day polygamous community. Today, in part two of our series, we're learning how polygamy began in America. And uh, the book we're talking about is Revelation, Resistance, and Mormon Polygamy, The Introduction and Implementation of the Principle, 1830 to 1853. This is published by USU Press, by the way. Marina Smith is the author, and she joins me for the hour. And we're examining the central question, early adherents' acceptance of such a radical form of marriage in light of their dedication to accepted monogamous marriage patterns of their day. I want to get into uh, the first introductions to various people by Joseph Smith. Um, mm-hmm. And we've heard the reaction by Brigham Young, for example. He, anytime he saw a dead person, you know, coffin going by, he wanted to join them. He had a real struggle. I, I think that was fairly typical, and it, and it, you write, and I guess I could predict, uh, the women even more so than the men. Yeah. Yes, that's true, although um, Joe Smith selected you know, he carefully selected who he would introduce it to first, and and most of them were had been in the church a long time, and they were very faithful people. They believed he was a prophet, so um, they were. He had a fairly good success with convincing women to marry him polygamously, though I think they did were troubled by it. All of them. So. Where where did this start? Joseph Smith decided to live the principle himself. Invited other women to, to marry him before he started introducing it to other men and women? Or, or how did it happen? Yes. Um, there's some speculation that he actually tried to practice polygamy in, in Kirtland. This is a fairly um, controversial subject where there's a lot of disagreement, but um, there's a woman named Fanny Alger that thought that he married there. But that sort of... And, and that didn't work very well. I argue that 
the church was not in a position to, um, it was pretty unstable, and they were moving back and forth between Kirtland and Far West, and they had the controversy with the bank and so on and so on. So it wasn't a very stable period. When they moved to Nauvoo, by contrast, they were able to get the Nauvoo Charter. They were welcomed into Illinois because the state was new and they were hoping to bring in the new economic prospects and new people to help build the state. And so they were really welcomed into Illinois at first and given uh, some broad latitude, really, with the Nauvoo Charter. So things really kind of it became more possible. They had more social and economic stability at that point. And so I think it was more possible then to introduce polygamy. And I also argue that it had to be introduced secretly. There was no other way that it could have been introduced because if it had been introduced publicly, people just would not have accepted it. So the situation was that by introducing it secretly, the gossip and the rumor mill really were able to work and get people accustomed to the idea while the theology that supported it grew up. And so by the time there was a strong theology that supported it and people were kind of accustomed to the idea, they were able to accept it ultimately. But he introduced it first to, as I was saying earlier, some of the young women who had been in the church a long time that were very faithful. They had families usually that were part of the church. And so um, he started by marrying a woman named Louisa Beeman and her brother-in-law, um, Brother Bateman, <laughs> um, was the one that married them in his home in 1841. So that was the beginning. And then I think that same year he married two other women, mm. the Huntington sisters. Mm. Now, uh, when he started introducing this to other people, um, I'm curious about, and this is kind of sort of the central question of the, the book, the, the people in the church, of course, believed in the church, believed in Joseph Smith uh, as receiving revelation, a prophet, mm-hmm. in other words, um, but they were, they were people of their times, right? And they, they would have grown up with this uh, intense adherence to monogamy. Exactly, right. That's why it was so difficult for them. And when he initially started introducing it, I mean, it it is a little difficult to know exactly how he did it because they're all retrospective um, accounts of his introductions. But I try to use them because I think he initially started introducing it by saying, God has required this of me, and an angel with a drawn sword has come and told me that I must do this. And he didn't, though, from what I can tell of the accounts, have a worked-out theology that would explain why they needed to. I think it was part of a sort of family-centered theology of salvation that was growing up, but he didn't seem to explain that to them at first. He kind of based it on his own uh, prophetic status, I guess you'd say, and, and the commandment that he said God had given him and the angel and so on and so on. But he didn't really have this worked-out theology at that point. So my argument is that as it was introduced, the theology gradually was worked out that supported it. Maybe we could talk a little bit about that theology. That became important in uh, in people accepting the practice, didn't it? Yes, absolutely. I don't think... So it's basically a story, and I, and I just say people were primed at that time to accept unusual doctrines and so on, 
but it had to fit into a story of some sort. It had to fit into something they could understand. And, you know, it wasn't that this was unprecedented in religious history because, of course, it's in the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets. This was their form of uh, cultural and physical reproduction, but that really hadn't happened in the New Testament. So it had to be sort of reintroduced into the theological narrative. I kind of call it a theological narrative because that is the sort of theology that Mormons adhere to in part. You know, it's the stories that um, they kind of take the theology from the stories and from the prophecies and so on and so on. And so that's what was being built as the secret secret polygamy was happening the theology was growing and this theological narrative was was being built and people were kind of coming to understand that so ultimately polygamy was kind of worked into that narrative and this was the idea of a patriarchal order right i guess taken from the old testament this this was an idea forward and and the idea of of uh, what Joe Smith called sealing right that you you it was a it's a family salvation you you're all together in the hereafter yes exactly um and and it you know obviously creates all kinds of ties kinship ties and and just all kinds of ties that are important and going to be recognized in the hereafter you know so it there's kind of logic to it i think hmm. Yeah. Now, the title, Revelation Resistance, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the resistance. You say the resistance mm-hmm. was important in how this all uh, all uh, went forward. It was secret at first, but the uh, you know there was resistance. Yes, and one of the primary places where the resistance played itself out was in the Relief Society. So a lot of these um, new innovations started in 1842, so this was after secret polygamy began, and, of course, there were rumors and so on all through Nauvoo. And so uh, in Relief Society, Relief Society was kind of started, of course, to help with the Nauvoo Temple, but Joseph Smith um, admonished the women right at the beginning that they were going to be kind of moral watchdogs for the community. And so um, with all these rumors going around, they um, considered it their duty to kind of try to get to the bottom of them and uh, stop immoral behavior and so on. And so it's kind of interesting to read the Relief Society minutes for Nauvoo and see how these sort of veiled and sometimes not so veiled references to what was going on came out there and where this battle was kind of publicly fought to some degree. Because Emma Smith, of course, was uh, vehemently opposed <laughs> And yet, she didn't fully know what was going on for quite a while, but she knew something was going on, and so she was doing her best to combat it with her position as president of the Relief Society. Yeah, she's an interesting case um, because she's head of the Relief Society, she's married to the head of the church, uh, she's vehemently mm-hmm. opposed to uh, to polygamy, and yet she believes in her husband and his, in his work. She's 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 torn. What? But ultimately, she did ex- she did accept it. I don't know fully, but she did ex- at least allow it in well, you know in her household, yeah. right? Or what, what was her attitude? <laughs> I know her attitude at the beginning it was vehement uh, opposition. <laughs> Where did she end up? Well, she ended up vehemently opposed, and in fact, in the end of her life, denied that it had ever happened. But um, she 
1842, Relief Society grew exponentially and, you know, probably in part because of the fireworks over polygamy <laughs> that were happening there. But it wasn't just polygamy that was going on. Um, and it's, you know, this is very shadowy. There's not a lot that of primary sources from the period that we can draw on. But we do know that the Nauvoo High Council was busy all that summer with cases of um, adultery and so on, and men who were going around saying, talking about spiritual whiffery, which was uh, something that had kind of been, you know, floating around the nation for a while, and it was... Uh, men would say to women, well, we're spiritually married, you know, we don't have to be um, legally married because um, we have this spiritual connection. And so some men were going around teaching that this was fine and, you know, they could, um, they would seduce women with this, this argument. And so that kind of thing was going on. But I don't believe those were sanctioned cases. Those were not instances where Joseph Smith had told men they were just being opportunists, you know, they, they heard the rumors and they were thinking, oh, I can get away with this, you know. Hmm. So you had all of that mix going on, and it's, it's kind of hard to sort it out, you know, hmm. at this distance. But. I wonder if you could talk about uh, John C. Bennett. You, you talk about a, a scandal that erupted, uh, I don't know, 1842 or 43, uh -huh, maybe? That's when he was uh, sort of, you know, kicked out of the church. Yeah, he um, he was doing this, going around seducing women, and it's he was though very important in the early church, and he helped get the Nauvoo Charter. He had contacts in the Illinois legislature and so on, and he had been made mayor and you know been given lots of important positions. But and it's not known if Joseph Smith, um, you know, introduced polygamy to him. It's just not known. Uh, Brian Hales, I was talking, he just did a three-volume history of Joseph Smith and polygamy, and he's, he is pretty certain that John C. Bennett was never told, you know, introduced to polygamy by Joseph Smith. I just don't think there's any way to know at this distance. They were close and so on. But um, then it became clear that John C. Bennett was seducing women, and so... Um, the scandal happened, and he was kicked out of the church in, oh, it's like early summer of 1842. And then he began writing his expose of polygamy. But he was known to be a very unprincipled person and an opportunist, and so he was able to cause some damage, but his reputation wasn't very good, so that kind of limited the damage he could do. But the scandal that erupted... Uh, did kind of throw the church into a lot of, um, you know, it was a difficult time. And this is a problem, isn't it, that it's occasioned by the secrecy? That there's some advantage of secrecy. You say it was a, that polygamy was allowed to sort of develop, but there are some right. problems occasioned by the secrecy. And one of those is a, is a guy like John C. Bennett, who a lot of people recognize was a man of not really high character, could, could take advantage of of this, of these rumors. Yes, and, and not just him. Yeah, some other men did the same. It's interesting to read the Nauvoo High Council minutes for that summer, and uh, yeah, it has, case after case comes up, and the women say, yes, he told me that this is sanctioned by church leaders, and so on and so on, not just Bennett, but other men, and so, yeah, it was, um, and you can see that that was occasioned by the secrecy, but yet 
I argue, and I'm pretty sure this is true, that it was impossible to introduce it without the secrecy because any attempts to introduce it publicly caused just a huge uproar at that time. So that was the only possibility, really. Hmm. Uh, we're going to take a brief break. When we come back, I'd like to talk about the uh, the, the uh, deaths of uh, Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram, the succession crisis. And you argue, I believe, Rena Smith, that uh, belief or not belief in polygamy uh, played a central role there, and then moving on to, to Utah. But before we go to break, I, I want to just uh, sort of um, maybe finish this discussion on why would people who believe so passionately in monogamy um, accept this? And I guess it does come down to it became part of the theology, part of the religious belief. Mm-hmm. Would people latched onto it uh, fervently on that standpoint, I guess? Yes, it became connected to... Uh, salvation and exaltation, basically. And it really fit with the family-centered understanding of salvation and exaltation. So that really is, in my opinion, what allowed people to accept it. Mm -hmm. And probably would be a central reason why people accept it, live it today. Yes, I agree with that. I Mm -hmm. think that's true. By the way, do you, uh, you know... I don't know if you've talked to to uh, members of uh, you know polygamous communities today, but and so that that might be from a remove. But you've done research on the beginnings of polygamy. Are, uh, do you think there are important differences uh, between the two groups? Uh, you know, the Nauvoo period, the 1840s, and the groups who practice it today, uh, in terms of how they understand polygamy. Well, you know, that's not really. I have read a couple of books about that, but. It's not really my um, expertise, so I wouldn't <laughs> want to say too much about that. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question, though. It's something, yeah. as I continue my research, yeah, I would like to kind of think about that some more. Yeah, it was interesting uh, talking to members of Centennial Park uh, community yesterday. I know, I wish I'd heard your yeah. show yesterday. And uh, <laughs> interesting to, to kind of go back to the beginnings today. We're going to continue this discussion with Marina Smith, author of uh, Revelation, Resistance, and Mormon Polygamy, the Introduction and Implementation of the Principle, 1830 to 1853, following a break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And Square Run Printing at 630 West, 200 North, Logan. Personalized printing for home, school, or business, including banners, business cards, letterheads, envelopes, brochures, flyers, and calendars. Information at squareoneprinting.com. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. Sticking to a regular exercise schedule isn't easy. After all, there are plenty of potential hindrances time, boredom, injuries, and self-confidence. But these issues don't need to stand in your way. Consider practical strategies for overcoming common barriers to fitness. Squeeze in short walks throughout the day. If you don't have time for a full workout, don't sweat it. Shorter spurts of exercise, such as 10 minutes of walking spaced throughout the day, offer benefits too. Choose activities you enjoy. You'll be more likely to stay interested. Remember, anything that gets you moving counts. Exercise with friends, relatives, neighbors, or coworkers. You'll enjoy the camaraderie and the encouragement of the group. Schedule exercise as you would schedule an important appointment. Block off times for physical activity and make sure your friends and family are aware of your commitment. Whatever you decide to do, stick with it and remember why you're doing it. Your heart will thank you. This is Dana for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah, and uh, we're talking about polygamy, the second of a two-part series. Yesterday we talked to members of the Centennial Park community uh, who practice polygamy, and today we're talking about the beginnings, and the book is Revelation, Resistance, and Mormon Polygamy, the Introduction and Implementation of the Principle, 1830 to 1853, published by Utah State University Press. Our uh, guest for the hour is independent historian Marina Smith, author of the book. And we're going to get into a succession crisis upon the death of Joseph Smith and how polygamy, belief in polygamy or not, played a role in the struggle for control of the church and then move into the early Utah period. Uh, up I'd to, like to say quickly yes, go ahead. something about the integration. Yes, go ahead. In, yeah, in 1843, this is kind of interesting because as more people were drawn into polygamy, I, I say there were sort of two Navus, a polygamist and a non polygamist. And as people who were faithful and who believed, and some of them were wives of Joseph Smith, were brought into this, then he was able to use them to help bring other people in. For example, he had two older wives, Patty Sessions, who was a midwife, and uh, Elizabeth Durfee. And so they were in their 40s and 50s. They were not people that anyone would suspect that would be polygamous wives, but they had a lot of status in the community. They were respected, and they had they had their children were grown, so they had time to talk to people and sort of do some, you know, I would guess you'd say some social manipulation. And so he actually used people like that to help introduce it to the younger women, which would kind of calm their fears, you know, and help bring them in. So that's to me one of the, a very interesting aspect of how it was secretly introduced was by using people like that to help introduce it. What uh, I'm curious about the, uh, the rough percentages. Uh, what percentage of of the uh, church entered into polygamy in that period? Yeah, it was it was pretty small. Um, by the time they left, I think Michael Quinn has set, argued that it was about five percent. Hmm. So it was pretty small, and most of those were after Joseph died. So especially in 1846, after the temple was completed and sealings were done in the temple, that's when most of those were contracted, so it was very small. By the time he died, I forget the numbers, but it was very few people. But you still had uh, people who knew about it that were connected to other people, and that's kind of what was going to snowball after his death and so on. So, uh, and so, how would that compare to at the high point? Say that you know the the highest percentage that we can maybe figure out in in the Utah period of uh, percentage in church. Yeah, in Utah. Um. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe you know they're still kind of getting these figures, but and it depended on the community. But I would say the high point maybe 25 percent. Hmm. Okay. Like that. Interesting. Um, I want to talk a bit about the succession crisis. We have an email come in, and uh, I've neglected to give out the phone number and email. Uh, so we want to invite you into this conversation. Uh, it's 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. Love to have your perspective. Uh, and upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com is our email. The book is Revelation, Resistance, and Mormon Polygamy. The Introduction and Implementation of the Principle, 1830 to 1853. Our guest is the author, Marina Smith. The number is 1-800-826-1495, or you can join us at upraxis at gmail.com. This is Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. This is what he writes, responding to uh, something we said earlier. 
Um, he said, I'm neither Mormon nor even a longtime resident of the Western U.S., but like Tom and unlike the author, I find the vehemence of the 19th century opposition to polygamy and its placement on the morally equivalent plane with slavery more than puzzling. We're rightly warned not to impose on the past the ways of thinking on our own time, but even so, the difference between slavery, which is the violent, often murderous subjugation of human beings and the deprivation not only of their freedom but also of all hope for a lifetime, with polygamy, which is a consensual marriage arrangement, could not seem more stark. That's what uh, Steve uh, writes. Uh, I wonder maybe well, for got someone agreeing with you. I, yes, <laughs> right. Uh, I wonder your response. Uh, you know, um, it. I. I just still. Uh, you know, and it, I guess it well, must be my my viewing it through. You know, through the twenty first century prism is the way I can well, quite understand. You know, I. I think uh, the quotation I read earlier from Nancy Cott kind of explains it in that the thinking of well, what kind of community and what kind of um, culture are we going to have, you know, the founders thinking about that tyranny and so on. Um, and, you know, part of my response is just horror at the thought, you know, for myself, and I think a lot of women feel that way too. So I guess that's where it comes from. <laughs> and, and the quote from... Uh... Also, though, you know, polygamy is not, in the New Testament, it's really not a force at all. It's There's not really much said about it, but... I think most people would argue, well, you know, it, it was um, repudiated by the Jews and so on, and, and that's our religious tradition, so mm -hmm. that would be part of it as well. And a part of that quote that you read earlier, I believe, at least reading it in the book, um, the, the, the equation was um, polygamy was related to despotism, right? To the, the, exactly. The, the despot has a has a harem, and uh, and we're, we're having a, a whole new form of government to free of, of that kind of despotism. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, uh, just parenthetically, the, and you write this in the book, uh, the Book of Mormon, the, uh, a central Mormon scripture, um, mm -hmm. that disapproves of uh, polygamy. Yes, it condemns it, except in the case of, as it says, raising up seed. So, you so, know, so there's an opening there, seed. I guess. Okay. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I wonder if we talk about the succession uh, crisis. Uh, Joseph Smith and uh, Hiram Smith, his brother, are murdered by a mob. That throws the church, of course, into confusion. Who is going to succeed to the leadership? And you write that uh, polygamy played a central role here. Yes, that's right. Joseph Smith had actually designated various people to succeed him. And then um, when, but he had given some interesting things that the endowment was new at that point. And so he had given that only to a few people, but he had also given the second anointing, which is also known as having your calling and election made sure he'd given that to a few people. But polygamy had um, really elevated the Quorum of the Twelve because they had been very accepting of it, whereas the Nauvoo High Council had been much less so. William Marks, who headed the Nauvoo High Council, did not accept polygamy, though he was a very mild-mannered man and, and very supportive of Joseph Smith. So he never really repudiated it either, but he didn't really accept it. And so uh, he was a possibility for succession. And, and uh, you know, all of the 12 were away on campaigning for Joseph Smith's run for the presidency when the murder happened. And so they weren't there to influence events, even though they were the ones that accepted polygamy. So there wasn't really a big polygamy faction there in um, 
Nauvoo when when that happened, but there were a couple of people. One of them was William Clayton and Newell Whitney were two that were there. And uh, William Clayton, he's one of our best sources, contemporary sources, because he kept a very good diary, and he was also a um, secretary for Joseph Smith and, I believe, for Brigham Young. And so he, um, some historians have argued that the Quorum of the Anointed, this was a special quorum that Joseph Smith had established, that he had given these ordinances to the second anointing and the endowment, and the ones that were in Nauvoo were still meeting. And so um, William Marks was sort of the head of that, being the sort of highest level person in the city. And so um, Emma Smith kind of pushed the quorum to anoint William Marks as head of the church at this point. But um, William Clayton wrote that Newell K. Whitney referred him to the fact that Marks being with law, that would be William Law and Emma Smith, in opposition to Joseph and the quorum, on polygamy, um, that they really needed to frustrate this, this having Marx appointed as head of the church at this point. And so then that left time for Brigham Young to return and Sidney Rigdon to come. And, of course, Brigham Young supported polygamy. And so that kind of prevented William Marx from being appointed, who would not have favored it at that point. So it was part of the politics of the whole situation. Then, of course, the, the, the church uh, eventually moves to uh, what would become Utah, and for a few years there, it's, it's just a matter of survival and, and, and migration. Uh, but uh, the early 1850s, um, the, the veil of secrecy is, is dropped, becomes open? Yes, 1852, that's right, it's announced to the world. And I don't really get into that too much, because what I'm looking at more is the way that it was implemented in um, kind of as a social um, institution, you know. Mm -hmm. So I was able to look at a couple of people. One of them is John D. Lee um, of, you know, he's sort of notorious, of course, for Mount Meadows Massacre, but he was very trusted of Brigham Young. He was an adopted son, really. And so um, he had ten wives (laughs) by the time they left Nauvoo or or he had married some of them, too, as they crossed the plains. And um, so I look at his um, family and how it was sort of implemented and how more people came to understand about it and how they sort of figured out the rules, you know, because no one had observed it being practiced and so on, and so they had to kind of work these things out in the process of living in polygamy. So that's really what my last couple of chapters are about is looking at these diaries and kind of seeing how they managed to institutionalize it. Yeah, how, how were the rules worked out? Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, that, uh, of course, theologically, this is introduced, you, you, you accept it, but then you have to figure out how it works. How to live it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and that's almost, you almost have to read the last couple, couple of chapters to see how that was done, but so they didn't, really necessarily understand what the obligations were of the man or the woman. And I argue that um, it kind of brought parents back into the picture a little bit. In the early 19th century, parents were kind of moving out of the picture of young marital couples because marriages weren't arranged anymore and love matches were becoming the norm and so on and so on. And so 
But polygamous matches usually weren't. Sometimes maybe were love matches, but usually that was secondary. You know, it was more like they were doing their religious duty. But it wasn't understood, was a man going to support all of his wives fully? That would be very difficult. Um, were women going to rely on their husbands as they had in monogamous marriages? Well, that and the intimacy that you would expect, that wasn't really possible. So they just had to come up with new paradigms that they could live by. And it was a very difficult process and very um, painful and there were lots of conflicts and so on. As you see, looking at um, John D. Lee's family, and then, you know, how do, how did his first wife react? How did um, subsequent wives, when they're not maybe getting everything they think they should be getting from a marriage, but he's courting other women? You know, so these were all difficult conflicts, and they were just kind of worked out in the process of, of living. You know, and of course, many divorces happened too. But. Yeah, I was just going to say sometimes it didn't didn't work out and then one wife or, you know, or maybe more would would divorce the, the husband. Yes, that's that's exactly what happened and so all of these were just rules that were kind of growing up and they were figuring out how it was going to work, you know, and so that's what the last couple of chapters are looking at. Also from a woman's perspective, uh, the case of Patty Sessions who was She's a really interesting case because she was a, married to Joseph Smith but continued to live with her husband, um, David Sessions, and they had children together, and she was older. But then David married another woman in Nauvoo just before they left. But then Rosilla was her name. She joined them as they were crossing the plains, and then she and Patty had to work out this co-wife situation, which was very difficult because Rosilla was young. She was only 32, and Patty was very established, and she had many friends, and she was well-known in the community as a midwife, and Rosilla kind of had to fit herself into the family. She didn't have children in the family, and so, of course, she wasn't very happy with the situation, and she kind of went on strike, and so it was a very painful situation, which ended with Rosella leaving uh, Winter Quarters and returning to Nauvoo mm. and marrying somebody else and just having another life. But that's kind of typical. You know, they're trying to work this out, and yet no one knows how to do it. You know, they haven't observed it, and they they might have faith that it's the right thing, but practically it was very hard to work out. <laughs> Uh, finally, just have a couple minutes left. I'm I'm wondering, having sort of gotten diverted, you were going to write about a different period. You got interested in this question of uh, of, of how people come to accept this. Uh, uh-huh. wh- what do you take away? Any anything surprising d- develop in to you as uh, through the process of writing the book? Well, I guess you know you wouldn't won't be surprised to hear from my reaction to the slavery and polygamy duality. <laughs> um, I'm still surprised that people would accept it, <laughs> you know. But, you know, again, that's, I guess, my own, um, but, but, you know, and that's why I wrote the whole book, I guess. But, but I think it does show you how faith and belief can sort of 
help people accept things, I guess, that they wouldn't normally accept. And so I actually am going to move on now because I had done a lot of my research about Utah and have some really interesting sources and so on because I think that it was it continued to be hard for people to accept. You know, they, they were living in a country where, as time went on, they were more and more um, vilified for practicing polygamy. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, women especially maybe, but a lot of men too, really wanted monogamy. You know, it was hard to practice polygamy. And so I think the desire for monogamy really never died. It was it was still there. A lot of people embraced polygamy, and it worked well for a lot of families, but it didn't for others. And so, you know, I've seen in a lot of the sources going forward how people dealt with this, you know, and how they, um, well, I, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to draw too many conclusions about that at this point, but that is something that kind of interests me, how much of this desire for monogamy stayed alive and the influence of it in the polygamous period, you know. Well, we'll look forward to your uh, future future works. Uh, Marina Smith is uh, author of the new book, Revelation, Resistance, and Mormon Polygamy, The Introduction and Implementation of the Principle, 1830 to 1853. It's published by Utah State University Press. Uh, appreciate it. Interesting hour. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's been very interesting. And uh, tomorrow, Sherry Quinn is in with uh, Science Questions. Hope you'll join her for that. And on Monday, hope you'll join me uh, in a discussion with Victor Navasky, who's written an interesting new book, The Art of Controversy, Political Cartoons and Their Enduring Power. For producers uh, Haley Housley and Addison Pace, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. Waste not. Wash your pets outdoors in an area of your lawn that needs water. Another way to conserve water, use a broom instead of a hose to clean sidewalks and driveways. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. This is Utah Public Radio. KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, and KUSUFM HD1 91.5 Logan. The beginning of the summer season is just around the corner. You've got places to go, people to see, fun things to do. Utah Public Radio's 60th anniversary auction can help you plan your recreation and entertainment. The auction is now open with more than 400 items worth $50,000. And you'll probably find something that you'd like to bid on at upr.org, upr.org. Most auction items are donated and support Utah Public Radio. It's the Utah Public Radio 60th anniversary auction now open at upr.org, upr.org.